Uh, greetings everybody, Stephen Gray here, and uh, you've probably noticed you're watching this on Stephen Gray Vision YouTube channel, or you might be listening to it on Anchor.fm or some of its spin-offs. <clears throat> and the sole purpose of doing these interviews with leading figures in psychedelics and consciousness transformation work uh, is to promote uh, the healing and awakening of humanity, especially, well, always important, of course, in the history of this planet, but uh, arguably more than ever now as we face extreme crises on this planet. And uh, one might say the karma has uh, come home to roost, so to speak, and we need to, uh, the, the days of the flatland time, are over, you might say. So um, in that regard, I'm. Uh, it's a cliche to say honored, but I really am honored to have Bill Richards, William Richards, with me today. And um, uh, that is because not only does he seem to be a wonderful fellow, you'd have to check with his wife on that one, but um, um, uh, part, sorry for the lightheartedness there, Bill, but anyway, um, uh, 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 he, he seems to be a very kind and friendly person, but not. But much more important than that, really, I suppose, is that he has been one of the groundbreaking uh, figures in psychedelics work uh, going back to the early 1960s. And so um, here's a, um, a brief kind of bio of Bill. Um, he's a psychologist in the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research in Baltimore, or uh, Maryland. <clears throat> um, uh, has been implementing research studies with psilocybin within the psychiatric department of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine since 1999. And I, I can't resist a little corrective here for, for people. So many people say John Hopkins as if John is the first name, but the actual name of that uh, university and school of medicine is Johns Hopkins. Um, uh, he is also associated with the program in psychedelic therapies and research at the California Institute of Integral Studies, that's CIIS, and psychedelic research with sunstone therapies at the Aquilino or Aquilino Cancer Center in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, Bill's graduate degrees including, include a Master of Divinity at Yale, an STM, which if it matters, Bill, you're going to have to tell me what that is because I don't know what an STM is, in the Psychology of Religion at Andover Newton and a PhD from Catholic University. He studied with Abraham Maslow, the legendary Abraham Maslow at Brandeis University with Hans Carl Lenuer, pardon me if I don't get the name right, uh, didn't get the name right, at George August University in Göttingen, uh, Germany, where his involvement with psychedelic research originated in 1963. From 1967 to 77, he implemented, proje implemented projects of psychotherapy research with LSD, DPT, MDA, and psilocybin at the Maryland Research, uh, pardon me, Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, including protocols designed to investigate the promise of psychedelics in the treatment of alcoholism, depression, narcotic addiction, and the psychological distress associated with terminal cancer. And also their use in the training of religious and mental health professionals. His recent research at Johns Hopkins has focused on the potential value of psilocybin in the continuing education of professional religious leaders from different world religions. His book, Sacred Knowledge, Psychedelics and Religious Experiences, has been released by Columbia University Press and now translated into six additional languages. 
And uh, before we get going here, I just want to mention that I've read this book more than once, and it's an excellent book. Uh, I love the subtitle, uh, Psychedelics and Religious Experience, really puts a context on it. So uh, welcome, Bill, and thanks a lot for joining me. Well, it's, it really is an honor to be with you. I can hardly wait to see what all we're going to talk about. <laughs> right. Well, you're going to do most of the talking. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just going to feed you a few questions, and uh, you can go on as long as you want uh, uh, in answering those questions. So um, here's, here's, here's one that might be a good starting place, since you have such a long and colorful history with these medicines or sacraments. Um, so what, uh, what, what drew you toward this work in the first place? Well, uh, briefly, uh, once upon a time, I was uh, a graduate student at the University of Göttingen in Germany. Um, actually went there to study theology. And uh, in the, uh, just around the corner from the dorm where I was living uh, was the, the Nerfin Clinic, the nerve clinic or psychiatric clinic of the university. And our psychiatrist there, Hans Karl Leuner, was doing research with some new drug and looking for volunteers. Um, two of my friends volunteered. Uh, one experienced himself sitting in his father's lap. His father had died during World War II, and it was very meaningful and healing for him. And the other one saw visions of SS men marching in the streets. And uh, I thought, gee, I've, I've never seen anything like that. It sounds like fun. Uh, and so I went over and asked if I could apply. And um, they uh, asked me if I got drunk very often. I didn't, if I was in good health, and led me to a little basement room and gave me an injection of this drug uh, called psilocybin. <laughs> and uh, um, what can I say? I've never been quite the same since. Uh, I had an incredibly profound experience that I did not even know was, was possible. I was uh, expecting to uh, get some insights into my early childhood. And instead, I essentially uh, had a glimpse of what uh, the Hindus would call uh, moksha. Mm -hmm. And um, at that point, I had not even heard the word psychedelic or psilocybin. Uh, and the importance of set and setting had not yet been recognized. That's why I was just given the drug and left alone. Um, the only music during the session was uh, the emptying of the hospital garbage cans outside of my window, <laughs> <laughs> which I perceived as kind of tinkling temple bells. <laughs> but anyway, I became known as that interesting American student who had the mystical experience, mm. you know, mm. and um, why I had such a positive experience is a long debatable story. Uh, but anyway, it did happen and uh, really uh, focused and launched the rest of my career in the 
psychology of religion and clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing psychedelic research uh, whenever I could ever since. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so uh, you may have partially answered a question I want to ask you that might follow out of that. Um, it could go any way you want to take it, basically. You've, you know, you just pointed out that your first experience gave you a glimpse of uh, sort of what you might call unconditional reality or divine reality. And that is reason enough, clearly, for these substances to be um, introduced to more people in careful ways. Uh, but to take it a little further, perhaps, uh, can you elaborate on why you think these, because you're still working with them now. And I am. Why, why are they so important? Why, what is, what is their, let's, okay, let me ask it this way. What is their, um, let's even say potential role that hasn't even been fully realized yet uh, in society? As I outline in my book, I, I feel like they have profound promise in medicine, in education, and in religion, okay? Most of my career has focused on their use in medicine, in treating uh, addictions and depression and the anxiety people often experience near the end of life. Um, and I think they're, they're opening up a whole new uh, dimension of effectiveness and beauty and meaning in the field of psychiatry. It's, uh, it's a fascinating frontier we're on there, uh, just medically seen. And we're working with the uh, FDA and doing the research required to get uh, psilocybin rescheduled in the United States to come off of Schedule 1 allegedly uh, drugs that have uh, no uh, nothing to contribute and are dangerous and destructive, which really does not apply to the psychedelics when they're responsibly and competently administered. So we're working through medicine uh, to get the drugs legal and integrated wisely into uh, Western culture. Right. So that begs a couple of questions in my mind, uh, related questions. One, and so uh, I'm assuming that some of the people who watch or listen to this interview are going to be uh, what you might call lay people from the psychedelic community, if there is such a thing, you know, loosely defined. Um, and uh, among those people, uh, I don't know what the percentage would be, there will be people who are um, uh, doubtful or suspicious about over-medicalization, so to speak, or the medical um, uh, establishment, I guess you could say, controlling the dispensation and use of these overly much. Um, can you comment on that concern? Sure. Uh, I see, you know, two, two tra trajectories, if you will, you know, one uh, uh, integrating them into medical care. And that's where I've been putting most of my efforts, you know, I don't think that rules out uh, the freedom to use them uh, by so-called healthy people, you know, uh, 
My only concern is that they learn how to use them wisely, mm-hmm. you know, so there's not a lot of uh, um, harm done and people rushing into emergency rooms in paranoid states mm-hmm. just because they don't know how to approach these drugs responsibly and intelligently. But uh, they're, they're both legitimate. Uh, their, their use in religion goes back to uh, at least 5,500 BC. You know, <laughs> it's nothing new. And uh, they arise in cultures and get suppressed and arise and get suppressed, very much like mushrooms. And right now they're arising. And my hope is that we can be evolved enough to sanely and carefully and responsibly integrate them into our societies in really constructive ways. And I think we can. Mm -hmm. As far as the medical route, there are many suffering people and uh, often uh, rather poor people, rather poorly educated people sometimes, uh, but people who don't have uh, tie-dyed t-shirts and can't spell psychedelic, okay? <laughs> and they're suffering. Mm-hmm. And the way I think they're going to be helped through medicine is for this to be established as a legitimate medical therapy Uh uh, for health insurance, Medicare in the United States to cover the treatment so that people who uh, don't have a lot of money can have access to this, you know, in a Uh completely safe and legal way. So uh, my personal effort has been to support the medical use and through the California Institute of Integral Studies to train therapists and researchers to work on that frontier. Uh Um, For example, if psilocybin becomes uh, legal and integrated into palliative care, and a few years from now, many, if not most, of the oncology centers will want to offer psychedelic therapy Uh with psilocybin. We need a small army of competent therapists to do that. And where are they going to come from? You know, there aren't enough psychiatrists to do it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's mental health people of all different flavors, perhaps chaplains and pastoral counselors, uh, people we can train to work responsibly with the psychedelics uh, as a medical intervention. And you've you've just made an excellent case. Thank you, Bill. That's that's a vision that excites me, actually. Um, It's such a sensible thing, you know. Yeah. Um, so this is a little bit of an outlier question, but uh, in relation to that, but it is relevant to what you're talking about. Um, and I just wonder if you have a thought about this. Uh, I read um, uh, an account from a, an ayahuasca shaman from Peru who was at a conference, like a medical conference of some kind in Lima uh, that involved a lot of non-native people as well. And he said something like, uh, we don't have, um, we have a lot of respect for Western medicine, uh, um, but we also know that it's only half 
of the picture or the work. The other half is the connection to the spirit of the plant. Um, and well, I know, you know, LSD, for example, doesn't, because it's not exactly a plant, of course, doesn't necessarily have a spirit per se. But um, does that, what do you think of that? Uh, that idea that, you know, that the, the connecting with the spirit of the plant is what it, uh, evokes much of the power of the healing. Well, there, this is a sensitive area, and mm -hmm. I feel I need to choose my words carefully because I don't want to be under, misunderstood, you know? Yeah. Um, I guess my, I think there are different languages, different traditions of talking about how to approach psychedelics, how to use them wisely, how to learn from them. Um, I love the ayahuasca tradition of uh, going in. When you take it, you go in for a lesson from the teacher, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's stereotypes projected in both directions between these two communities, if you will. A and... Um, they're, they're, I think they're both really stereotypes because many of the shamans, uh, they're not primitive witch doctors. Many of them may well have medical degrees you know, or they, they have a lineage. They're, they're, they're members of the 21st century living in the countries that allow it. And they're in touch with the, the long religious traditions and the ways and the ceremonies and the Icaros hymns or whatever, uh, which is beautiful and wonderful. And uh, I honor that community. But on the other side, uh, the medical research community, at least today, is not a cold, white-coated group, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it, the psilocybin or LSD is always given it with great care, with preparation, with support, with uh, a well-designed environment, with et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very loving, almost sacred container in which the drug is administered, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and for people who haven't seen our lab at Hopkins, for example, <laughs> they may picture something very different. Uh, I think there's this individual trust, the social dimension of support, the uh, intention to learn and um, grow spiritually and psychologically that's really in common with both groups. I think I would uh, argue that it's what really counts isn't the plant, it's the molecule. And I can tell you from my experience that the molecule of psilocybin, say, synthesized in a laboratory, born in a test tube, if you will, mm -hmm. you know, is profoundly sacred stuff. Mm. You know, what it does is transformative, sacred, beautiful, you know? And yeah, it was born uh, 
in a test tube, you know, <laughs> kind of created by a, a, a scientist mixing different chemicals together. Uh, but I don't think it's any less sacred than the natural plant. You know, I could be wrong. Some of the natural plants have some additional uh, chemicals in them, like biocystin and norbiocystin in the mushrooms, for example, that might uh, augment, change a little, um, you know, the response. I don't know. Um, there are some uh, concoctions that may just promote the... Uh, amount of nausea experienced or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, but um, as you mentioned, LSD is born in a test tube and is certainly profoundly sacred in the realms that it opens up or potentially sacred. Not every experience is sacred, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> and similar... We have mushrooms, we have uh, the peyote cactus, you know, we have the um, DMT toad, <laughs> you know, that all seem to uh, exude um, or contain similar molecules, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, um. For example, we're often concerned about the uh, uh, shortage of uh, uh, peyote uh, plants. And um, with honoring the Indians, perhaps we should stop uh, uh, raiding the desert of peyote plants. But a good chemist can make mescaline in a test tube that as far as we can tell is every bit as potent as the peyote, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you I know, know um, uh, what's his name? Um, Aldous Huxley? Uh, no, which, uh, was it Aldous Huxley that wrote The Doors of Perception? Yes. Yeah, uh -huh. and he talked, he used mescaline for those profound, you know, spiritual experiences. Right. Yeah, yeah. And also those profound experiences happen spontaneously for some people. Mm -hmm. uh, take my mentor, Abraham Maslow. You know, he never took a psychedelic. Yeah. He didn't need to. He, he was a natural Jewish mystic. He could lie down in his backyard in the sunlight mm -hmm. and have a mystical experience every now and then. Well, how do we explain that? Uh, we know that all of our bodies do create dimethyltryptamine. Uh, we're all in violation of federal law by being human. <laughs> and though it's often argued that the amount is very small, so it can't be all that important. Yeah. Uh, but maybe, I don't know what the biochemistry is, but uh, people do have profoundly revelatory experiences with no drug at all, in meditation with sensory overload, with sensory deprivation, in natural childbirth, in uh, athletic feats, in creative performance sometimes, you know. Sexual um, ecstasy. Yes, ex very exceptional sexual experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe there's a common biochemistry happening. I don't know. 
the biochemistry of what's happening in our minds right now is mighty mysterious, not to mention what's going on during Ellis during a psychedelic session, you know, mm-hmm. the whole well, mis- mystery of consciousness and the relation of consciousness to the brain and so on is a huge frontier that we're we're just crawling out of the primeval mud and trying to understand it, you know. Yeah, well, beautifully put. And also, I just want to say before I move on to some other related questions that uh, this is one of the reasons I think it's so important for people to hear from you is because you are inside that world where that careful set and setting is being done. And this is not something that a lot of the people in the, well, not exactly quite tie-dye anymore, but, you know, the the sort of more layperson psychedelic community are not aware of that work and may have biases against that are unfounded, as you say, stereotypes. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and well, so, I think the ignorance goes in both directions. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Well, Things you haven't been exposed to, you haven't experienced the, the care and the rituals. But I would just, as I mentioned, that even the medical world has its rituals. Uh, indeed, yeah, yeah. In fact, we have a rose on the, the coffee table for every session, yeah. and I often think that's how religions get started. <laughs> yeah. We're developing our own uh, traditions, even within the world of medical research. You know, yeah, it's a remarkable time that way. Uh, I would say, yeah. Ralph Metzner's book Teo Nanakadali talks about because we don't have a lineage, uh, a very accessible lineage of ceremonial use of psilocybin, that he counsels. People people to very carefully create hybrid ceremonies based on their other experiences accumulated over the years with other traditions, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I want to keep moving because we we do have a a little shorter time than I usually have for these. Um, And one of the things that you just mentioned was, you know, the mystery of consciousness that we're just beginning to understand. And when you talk, when we talk about uh, biases, stereotypes, and some level of ignorance from either side of, uh, uh, of you know, the, whatever those two dichotomies are, this is maybe a different dichotomy. It's um, it's uh, it's addressed briefly in your book, and uh, these it's the difference, or uh, maybe you could almost say war between per- the perennialist and the constructivist perspectives. Um, could you? Uh, elaborate on that and actually the sort of follow-up question would be how's that debate coming like uh, yeah you know where you know where you know where you and i i I, i'm pretty sure i know where you and i stand on this one um well it's kind of delightful uh you know i'm not a professor in a department of religious studies at this point so i'm not uh participating in the debate um for those who aren't familiar with this literature, the perennialist idea is that there is a common state of consciousness deep within every human mind, regardless of culture, uh, whether atheist, agnostic, Baptist, Hindu, Islam, Jewish, you name it, uh, that within the depth of the mind, there is a common unitive, revelatory place, if you will. There is one God who, in the words of Paul Tillich, is the really real God. 
(laughs) (laughs) Really separate from all our traditions and our languages and rituals and so on. And that the mystics of all the world religions have kind of rediscovered or tuned into that or experienced the death and rebirth of their egos and are left with that awestruck memory, if you will, of this unitive state. And we call them the perennialists, okay? Aldous Huxley wrote a book, The Perennial Philosophy. It's essentially the platonic philosophy being rediscovered over and over and over uh, in the history of of religion, okay? And there's words for that state of consciousness in every religious tradition, the beatific vision in Christianity and and so on, you know? Um, Moksha in Hinduism and so on. Um, Now, the constructionists, constructiveness? uh, I think it's constructivist. Yeah. Yeah. Constructivist, yeah. Yeah. uh, I see them as a bunch of academics that uh, have to write books and have to use a lot of words and have to lecture. (laughs) (laughs) And they're looking for distinctions, uniquenesses, uh, as opposed to the ineffable one that you you can't put into language, okay? Mm -hmm. And their stress is on how religious experiences are influenced by our expectations and the suggestions in our cultures, you know, by what your mother taught you, uh, etc. And there's no question there's some there's some truth in that, at least in the the language we use yeah. to uh, speak about religious experiences. But the extreme constructivists would say there is no perennial philosophy. All we have is what we generate in our own fantasies from our childhood and uh, early adult experiences, okay? I think that psychedelic work uh, really offers strong evidence for the constructionist or for the perennialist approach. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed, because uh, people of all different religious backgrounds and even good, honest uh, agnostics, skeptics, uh, report the same basic vision. And it's very hard to put into words. But it's in our, in our in the scientific community, we call it mystical consciousness. And believe it or not, that's becoming a scientific term. You can find it in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's a state of consciousness characterized by unity, transcendence of time and space, intuitive knowledge, a deeply felt positive mood, sacredness, awesomeness, and claims of ineffability and paradox afterwards. It's very hard to put into language. I died, but was never so alive. God was one, but he contained everything that is, and so on, you know? Um, so 
Uh, I think we have very strong uh, evidence to support the perennialist uh, approach right now. Excellent, yeah. Uh, in our precious, uh, somewhat limited time, uh, I would like to lead you toward a, a bit more of the sort of um, directly applicable kind of uh, um, information, uh, like the work that you have been associated with and been around and seen and participated in, uh, in these kind of careful therapeutic environments. Um, how would you describe the set and setting, like what makes an optimal set of setting and set and setting in that kind of work? Maybe, maybe even more setting than set, I suppose. Well, they're both important. You know, the set is simply a a safe, confidential, reasonably aesthetically pleasing environment where you feel comfortable and can relax. You know. Um, Set is your intention that I'm willing to learn, even if it involves some suffering, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'm willing to uh, trust the person I'm with, my guide, my therapist, and the relationship has developed enough that I can genuinely choose to trust this person and this whole procedure, uh, the right dose of a pure substance in a confidential, safe place. Uh, I can really be myself and allow myself to experience whatever emerges. I don't have to uh, censor it, you know? or try to make something happen or avoid something, you know? I can just honestly dive into the pool, if you will, when I don't know the depth of, or the temperature of the water. I feel secure enough, safe enough to allow that to happen. If we don't establish that quality of trust, we don't administer the psychedelic, okay? That, that presumes some some pre pre session sessions, so to speak. Yeah. So there's there's always at least four hours, and ideally as many as eight hours of relationship building mm. uh, before the drug is administered. And after. So pardon. And afterward. Yeah, and the same afterwards to mm. integrate and apply. Uh, digest, if you will, the insights that occur during the session. As we often say, it's very easy to love all mankind. You know, uh, loving your boss is something different. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to come back to work, back to earth, and start to uh, integrate these insights. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's another question that I hope to get to in our in our time here. But I want to follow up a little bit more in this line of thinking. So um, you've talked about and it's, you know, well known that there's uh, two sort of general loose descriptions of the kind of psychotherapy that one might or uh, psychedelic therapy that one might do. One is psycholytic and one is uh, psycho psychedelic therapy, um, both using the same kinds of substances, um, but dosage being the, the key difference there, obviously. So um, maybe you could say a little bit about 
for people who maybe are not familiar with the, the difference, what that is, and then when it's more um, uh, appropriate to, you know, well, what, what kind of dosages are more appropriate for what kind of situations, I guess you could say. Yeah, both, both approaches are incredibly valuable. The psycholytic uses lower dosage, uh, typically less than would be required for a mystical transcendental type of experience. So the content of the session tends to focus on your development, your interpersonal relationships, your, your psychological conflicts, the stuff that makes up most ordinary psychotherapy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's a very worthwhile area to explore. You know, the psychedelic higher dosage in addition to that, or sometimes instead of that, you know, opens up these universal states of consciousness of uh, gods and goddesses and precious stones and ancient civilizations, and then sometimes this mystical unitive uh, awareness. Um, they're both valuable. Uh, and sometimes people in their if the dose is high enough in their very first session will have a transcendental experience and then if you will on the way back to earth or in subsequent sessions will work on their personal psychodynamic issues and other people kind of seem to work, need to work through their personal issues uh almost like a ladder Mm. Uh, before the gates of uh, the heavens open up for them, okay? Hence uh, the importance of having a, a number of sessions before actually administering a medicine, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And yeah. both, both are good. You know, in the treatment of addictions, some, where there's a lot of uh, typically low self-worth, feelings of failure, disappointment, I've lost jobs, I've lost relationships, uh, my view of myself is very poor, okay? For a person like that to be able to tap into a mystical state where there's a sense of beauty and creativity and inner resources and unconditional love, Okay, it changes the person's self-concept, you know, and then it's easier to uh, talk to those relatives you've offended in the past, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but it works well both ways. Yeah. Uh, again, similar similar line of um, exploration here. Um, could you say a little bit about the kind of best practice or optimal uh, role and responsibilities of the therapist or guide in the kind of work you've been associated with? Well, the therapist has to be a very competent therapist, has to um, understand his or her own uh, needs and not uh, uh, exploit the situation in any way. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there's regrettable uh, lapses of good ethics in the psychedelic community, uh, both uh, in the um, 
plant-based world and in the research world that we don't want to happen in the future. Um, but um, whatever makes for effective therapy, honesty, genuineness, being uh, present, really being in the present moment together, really caring about the patient you're working with, you know? You're not just giving a drug to see what will happen. Mm -hmm. You're really in the world beside that person, okay? And in that healthy therapeutic relationship, the mind of the patient or research volunteer or whoever it is manifests a an incredible wise choreography of content if you will mm. that people experience what they need to experience at the growing edge of their personal and spiritual development it has nothing to do with the drug or the dose mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh it's really quite incredible but people have to know, know how to navigate in that inner world, you know, and that can be taught in the preparation. If you see something scary or threatening, what do you do? Well, the instinct is to run away from it, right? Try to be in control. Uh, and if you do that, you will reliably experience panic and paranoia. It's like a nightmare. You're running away from your own shadow. And the faster you run, <laughs> the smaller you are and the bigger the monster becomes, okay? No, you, you don't do that in psychedelic therapy. If there's something scary, you dig in your heels and you look it straight in the eye or go towards it and you say, well, hello, are you ever big and scary? What are you doing in my mind? What are you made up of? What can I learn from you? And you approach it, and there's insight and resolution, and you go on to new things. I, As expressed in the ayahuasca tradition, if you see the big anaconda serpent, what do you do? You dive into his mouth and look out through his eyes. Hmm. You become the serpent, the Shakti, the Kundalini, the Elan Vital that's within you. If you run from it, you're just going to get scared. Okay. So would you say that the guide or therapist um, pretty much has to have had full-on ego death experiences themselves to be able to negotiate or to help with that high dosage work? that would be ideal experiential education and training. Mm -hmm. And um, we hope to be able to implement that in the not too distant future. Uh, right now, the uh, realities are that, uh, well, we haven't really tried to get permission to give the psychedelics to our own staff at Hopkins, mm -hmm. for example. Oh. Mm. You know, uh, mm. the medical community would want to evaluate that very carefully, you know, yeah. 
it's a very different climate now than in the 1960s where when we hired a new person, they got two LSD sessions as mm. part of their on-the-job training, and they got paid for it. And we reported it dutifully to the FDA, and there was no controversy whatsoever, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's a different world in academia right now, and uh, uh, you have to explore that possibility very sensitively, you know? Yes. But what we do tell our research volunteers is that all of our therapists have experienced some alternative states of consciousness. How they've done it is their own private business, you know, whether it's meditation or psychedelics. And if it's psychedelics, whether it's been legal or illegal, you know, that's kind of their private lives. Um, but um, all of our therapists are not intimidated by radically different states. They don't fear that people are going psychotic. They don't wonder where the rescue medications are. They're able to be with people in these radically altered state. Okay, okay. excellent. Yeah. And that's where we are at this point in time. I have so many more questions. There's no way we're going to get through them in our limited time today. I might have to ask you at some point. You might have can... to do part two, Stephen. That's exactly what I was just going to say. Uh, so maybe this should be the last question, given that, uh, given the, our, our time constraints today, um, uh, in line with what we've just been talking about. Uh, how, you know, uh, I could quote uh, more or less Houston Smith talking about the importance of altered uh, traits versus altered states, and also his comment more or less uh, like this, that that psychedelics, uh, we know they can produce religious or spiritual experiences, but it's less certain they can produce religious lives. So my question about that would be, you know, in a loose sense, a general sense, what would you say are the best uh, attitudes, practices, etc., for the individual um, to turn altered state uh, states into altered long-lasting, life-lasting altered traits? Yeah. Well, there are many different experiences and many different people. Mm -hmm. And uh, St. Paul on the road to Damascus didn't need a second experience. One was quite enough, you know. Uh, but other people may experience insights that kind of sit there as intriguing memories. And do they want to do the work of applying them, living out of them? And... Um, uh, I think we need community, we need support, we need to know people who respect what we've experienced and don't just think we're uh, flaky or crazy, <laughs> but know that uh, this is the road of the mystics through the ages. And... Um, You know, I'm tempted to say we need institutions that provide support and integration. Mm -hmm. And then I think, actually, we have them. They're called churches and synagogues and mosques. Mm -hmm. you know, if they could simply awaken to the potential of immediate revelatory experiences here and now in the present that are occurring in the minds of many people. 
Oh, yes, I agree with that. They have all the best buildings. Yeah, they do. You know? <laughs> and, 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 everything, you know, good music, you know. Yeah, and they're losing, uh, you know, whatever you call them, participants these days. So bringing I'm, that back. Uh, uh, so yeah, we'd, if 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 you're up for it, I would, really would like to have a, a follow up here because I think I only got through about half of the kinds of questions that I would like to have asked you today. Um, and I'll just mention again then this this uh, excellent book, uh, 2016 I think wasn't it when you published this book? Yes. Yeah, um, Sacred Knowledge. And uh, I, I, I'm not saying this because Bill's here or because you know I get a cut from the sales or anything silly like that. I'm saying this because this is I. I I really believe an excellent book, um, a very deeply and thoroughly and kindly considered book. Um, so I'd recommend that. And Bill, just really briefly, is there anything uh, else you'd like people to check out? I can put a little tile under the screen, you know, like for a website or anything like that. Well, um, if you want to read about uh, scholarly research, uh, you go to hopkinspsychedelic.org. And there's all kinds of resources and uh, professional publications with lots of statistics and all that sort of stuff that you can study. Um, there's a lot of videos and with on YouTube and uh, similar sites, you know, uh, that provide more and more information about this frontier. Um, my own efforts are focused at uh, AquilinoCancerCenter.com uh, and uh, SunstoneTherapies.com for people interested in the application of psychedelic therapy at the end of life to help people live fully until they die and change the way we approach death. That might be a topic for another meeting together. Lovely. I I will put little uh, slide-in tiles underneath the screen for that, and uh, and so hopefully people will check out some of those. And uh, I know you got to go, so I'm going to say uh, thank you very much uh, for sharing your long accumulated wisdom and insights. As we say, Namaste. <laughs> I honor the divine within you, Stephen. <laughs>